Welcome to Jerry's Story. This is Steve Sherlock. I'm the first of the six children Gerald and Rita Sherlock brought into this world. This podcast shares the oral history I recorded with Jerry beginning in 2007 and running about to sometime in 2010. As Jerry's health declined, we recorded less frequently. I kick myself from time to time as we only managed to get from his earliest memory up through to the early 1950s. That was when we, Jerry and Rita's kids, started coming into this world, and the stories would have been really interesting to capture. I am, however, forever grateful for capturing in his voice what we were able to do and to share that with you. For additional information, visit Jerry's story on the internet at jerrysherlockstoryblogspot.com. The music for the intro and exit comes from Through Golden Fields by D. Yan Key. Licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. This is a report uh, submitted for my granddaughter Megan's history class on September 14, 1999. It's entitled HART, H-E-A-R-T. I like your description. Yeah. <laughs> Papa Shirley. She's got a little writer in her. <laughs> yeah, slight, slight. Papa Sherlock is a ruddy-faced old gentleman with wavy white hair and an ex-smoker's voice that carries a heavy New England accent. He has some weight on him. It's a polite, a polite saying that I was slightly fat. <laughs> but it's considerably less than it once was, thanks to his now hot, healthy diet. His my paternal grandfather. His actual name is Gerald Sherlock. He was born in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, on September 3, 1925, and still lives in that very city of his birth. Needless to say, an interview was conducted, conducted over the phone last Friday from 8.30 to 10 p.m., September 11th. I worked chronolo chronologically and asked him of events in the order of which they happened. So this, so it was that I asked him about the great, first asked him, about the Great Depression. The economic crash didn't affect his family as bad, badly as it did others. His father was a letter carrier and so had steady work that put food on the table and a roof over the family's head. We struggled, he said, admitting as much, and we had hard times where we were better off than most. With 10 children in the household, two siblings in college, and the other in nursing school, they certainly did struggle according to today's standards. However, there were other families that were actually worse off. Many of his classmates were struck. You could always tell who was on welfare, Papa said, because of the shoes they wore. They were natural leather, undyed, About 10 or 20 years ago, in, in the, the 80s, they were called a natural look. 
and they were quite fashionable. But in the Depression, they were not died to save money. And uh, we recognized them as welfare shoes. There were neighbors who worked for the Works Progress Administration and beyond his baseball Beyond his baseball field was a poor farm. It consisted of little shacks built for the homeless where they could receive free food from the government. Sometimes a wheel hit a ball over the fence into the poor farm, said Papa. It was really brave ones who climbed the fence and got the ball because the people in the poor farm were mostly old men who were too, too weak to reach down and throw the ball back. It was not very pleasant, according to Papa. If there were women and children who needed to be in the poor farm, separate shacks were built for them. I also asked him of the, about the attitude of those on welfare, their attitude towards it. Was it considered shameful? Yes, it is, was disgraceful, he said. The men were ashamed they couldn't take care of their family. Papa served in World War II from 1943 to 1945 in the Pacific. I knew from the start that I'd get a lot of material on all that when I asked about it. I was right. Papa's brother was drafted in 1941, supposedly. Actually, it was 1940. He was drafted for a year. And then, before the year we was drafted in January, and the year was going to end the following January, and then Pearl Harbor happened, so they automatically extended it for duration in six. Yep. Until the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The government then extended his service time until the end of the war in six months. My great uncle saw all of the war. My great aunt was also involved in the war as a Navy nurse. She enlisted in 41, eventually wound up in Honolulu at the same time as Papa. He got a special pass to hang out with her then. He, is, he sounded amused at that. <laughs> Slightly different language. Uh, right. Yeah, that, uh, I didn't hang out with her, I just wanted to visit her. <laughs> Papa himself got out of high school and couldn't wait to enlist in the Marine Corps. But his parents were against it. What he did do was go to the recruiting station, arrange it so that he would end up the Marine, in the Marines if he got drafted. He didn't get drafted. He said goodbye to his family. He was shipped off right away to Paris Island, South Carolina, for training. He stayed there for 10 weeks, came home for a 10-day furlough, went to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and a month later was went to Hawaii.
I, in Hawaii, I ran into Gil Bissett. He was in the Navy at the time. Your father might recognize that name. I later found out from my father that Gil later ran a hardware store in Pawtucket only a few, few blocks from his home. As part of the 4th Marine Division practice landing, shooting, marching, and other things in Maui. We used to wonder what all, what good all the practicing would do in us, but believe me, it helped. You're out there facing bullet, bullets, you tell you to move up, and you think, I don't want to move up, but you do it anyway. In the Marines, they tell you to jump, you don't even take time to ask how high you just jump. <laughs> His first battle was in Saipan in 1944. The invasion began with the 2nd and 4th Marine Divisions. And after, no, this here is, uh, it's listed wrong, you know. Uh, I'll read it as is. The invasion began with the 2nd and 4th Marine Divisions, and after 10 days, the Army relieved them. After 10 days, the Army joined them. The battle itself lasted for 30 days. 30 days. I asked him, Papa how they got sleep, and he explained to me about foxholes. You dig in and then nap in there while your, part your partner keeps watch outside. One time I woke up in a foxhole and my leg was wet. I felt my leg thinking I must have been hit by some shrap, but hit by some sort of shrapnel but found no wound. I finally figured out that the shrapnel had gone into my canteen. Since it was 90 degrees out, the water was warm enough to feel like blood. So it's scary, it's unimaginable. Yet when Papa spoke of telling the story, I got the distinct impression that that I had no idea what it was like at all. I probably don't. Papa contacted uh, contracted dengue fever during that battle. It was it was also known as breakbone fever, and known to kill. I ached from head to toe and was delirious. He said he was out of combat for ten days. Awfully well enough, enough as well. Shortly after he left the hospital tent, it was bombed. I asked him about the terrain and what the fighting was like. He was said it was very jungle-like and hilly, with a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat due to that. It wasn't army versus army, it was individual versus individual. Often the, the objective was just getting over the next hill and it was tough. From the top of the hill, the Japanese had a perfect view of everything that the Americans did. There was no element of surprise. Also embedded in the hills were little caves that the Japanese hid in. So as they drove the Japanese over the hill, some Marines would always have to check out the caves. Wasn't it an awful job, I asked. Sure, it was pretty bad, said Papa. But you had to do it. I mean, I heard some guys who didn't, in the middle of the night, Japanese came and killed everybody in that camp. It was a necessary thing. Papa also told me about Moppy Point.
at the very end of the island. The Japanese had civilian settlement there, but it was when it was their only territory left, they forced people to stand on the cliff and jump. If they didn't jump, they were pushed. Papa said that they had been on such a rampage through the China that they feared what the Americans would do to their prisoners of war. Saipan was officially taken on July 9, 1944. The Marines had landed on June 8th. Ten days later, the 2nd Marine Division and others, I'm sure, Papa didn't mention them, invaded Tinian. The train was much like it had been on Saipan, hilly and jungle-like. I asked Papa what the significance of these battles in the overall stepping stones, he told me. We emerged needed to get Guam back. We needed Saipan and Tinian to do it. He had the 3rd and 5th Marine Divisions did, in fact, take Guam later in 1944. A major point in taking Tinian was that Japanese had started building an airport there and half finished it. For some reason, I don't know, didn't mention that it was Tinian that the Hiroshima bomber was launched from. I found out that tidbit from my father. <laughs> but it was uh, a major, because they, the B-29s could take off from Tinian fly to Japan and bomb it and, and almost make it back. But then they decided to take Iwo Jima because uh, to make it, and then they could land, they could do it, they could fly from Tinian to Japan and bomb it. But depending on the weather conditions in Japan, they may have to go, you know, two or three or five hundred miles out of their way to avoid the weather and whatnot. And then they'd run out of gas on the way home and drop in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So we needed the uh, Iwo Jima. They went back to Hawaii for replacements after that. Roughly 3,500 3, Marines had been killed yeah, on Saipan and 8,000 were wounded. Papa's company was cut in half, having gone from 200 Marines to 100. They spent January of 1945 practicing on, and on February 19th, they attacked Iwo Jima. The island was volcanic with some shrubs and ever-present hills. There was a beach, Papa said, like those perfect beaches they advertised, except for one thing, it was black. The sand made it hard to dig foxholes since they would cave in as they were being dug. The battle lasted for 30 days. Papa said during the war he came sometimes to distrust the government. There a man named H.M. Smith of the Marine Corps, he was a Pacific Coast commander. He was overcome, overcome, overconfident and downright unrealistic. He estimated a 20-day battle for Saipan. 
they re the reason that the government was, was being so unrealistic was because they knew the truth and they knew it, that it wasn't good, so they told us that it was better than it really was and sent us out there to fight anyway. <laughs> frightening, frightening enough, Papa said the government was planning to invade Japan right up until the atomic bomb was dropped. We were actually shown the battle plans, Papa said. They were going to invade Honshu Island. It was going to be bloody. I estimated that as one million people would have been killed. They were going to send in six marine divisions, which was about 120,000 men. I was glad when they dropped a bomb on Hiroshima, we cheered. There's a lot of people who would have lost their lives if we invited Japan. And of those people was going to, one of those people was going to me. So I have some personal interest in the matter. And I'll argue with anyone who says we shouldn't have dropped the bomb. He announced rather emphatically, guilt, relief in not being sent all those years ago. I lived through three battles and come out without a scratch besides get, getting gangy feet. I was going to, I wasn't going to live through another. I asked Papa about the Holocaust. He didn't say much on it except that Hitler was evil and came to power on American money. Joe Kennedy was behind a lot of it and other American businessmen. Even though a lot of people would argue against that statement, I know not whether to with that, with that statement or deny it. It was the first time I've heard a theory like that. What was your attitude toward Vietnam, I asked him. He gave me an immediate response. We didn't go in to win. That was the one major objection I had. In World War II, we went in to win, but in Vietnam, we just went in to appease Catholic hierarchy. It was known as Cardinal Spellman War war because Cardinal Spellman in New York wanted to protect Catholic interests in Vietnam. He had lots of connections and sent a lot of advisors over to Vietnam. When I asked him about his attitude, young men avoiding the draft, he said disgraceful, just awful. That was another reason I opposed Vietnam. It was supposed to be a luck of the draw, but any kid who could afford to stay in college didn't have to go. There shouldn't be a draft if it isn't for everyone. I asked what he thought of the Cold War and how it affected people. His description of the war itself. It's like two guys having a fight, afraid to strike blows. Just two governments and a philosophical difference. The Cold War also changed life view. He said it made made people more afraid of confrontation. My next question was: You you've watched our culture change drastically. What is the cause cause of this? Has has the change been better or worse? He immediately answered, "For the worse. There's too much money." Parents give too much to their kids. In fact, kids are given too much freedom when when they haven't earned the right to it. I had to applaud him about the cause of the cultural change. 
he responded by saying it was politics and business. Example here is uh, here's the bank merger. Say two banks merge and the merger eliminates 4,500 jobs to save money. The money doesn't go to help lower prices, it just goes into the executive paycheck. Truth to, to tell, I didn't see what this really had to do with culture change, but it was still his answer. Who is the best president of the 20th century? FDR, Papa said, because he brought us the new deal with its social security and fair labor standards and led to our economic growth and brought us to World War II. Papa also announced I didn't even care who the next is going to be because, because whoever he is, he will go down in history as the worst president ever. The stock market is going to crash by 2000. It's in a balloon and it will pop soon. Whoever's president at the time will be hated. And in Clinton, but well, the economy has been good, and that will rub off on him. People remember him happily, despite whatever he did with his personal life. Finally, I asked Papa what the important event of the 20th century. Without hesitation, he answered, World War II. Why? He enumerated quite a few reasons. It changed the face of the world, creating new countries, new world powers, with democracy leading force in the Western world. It had the greatest effect on world, world affairs in all history. Relative case, peace came now with the creation of NATO, and NATO itself was prompted by World War II. The war has also changed technology. It has driven research at an extremely high speed, and we knew we now know much more about physics than to the atomic bomb, better planes, radar, sonar, and better mastered better medicine. So it's all of these changes had a massive effect on the world. So it, so ended the interview. I wasn't especially surprised to find Papa's family wasn't destitute during the Depression. Surprised to hear they were struggling, but I still find impressive. I and my peers grow up in a time for at least an area of high affluence where all our material needs are seen, seen to and our, our wants, and it is our wants that we find cause to complain about. It's humbling to hear about my grandfather's family. There is, there is strength, there is courage. I feel so spoiled that I, the only thing I have ever to worry about is the childish cruelty afforded by my peers. I have a wonderful family, I have, very, I have every need and seen to and I still complain. Perhaps this is like art and technology, everything else, after the Neolithic Neo Revolution. With our materials need taken care of, we can move on to higher things. Well, not, not necessarily higher, but to potentially higher. Perhaps this is how all aspects of culture come to flourish in either good or bad ways, when survival seems, ceases to be the only issue. The gro this growth 
really is a double-edged sword. However, because it is the what is the atom bomb of tech, if not technology, and what is medicine? And despite ruthless government, we have finally ended up with a democracy. Once we are given the time and the energy to devote our time to the reaches of our mind, it is left to our heart to determine what the fruit of our intellectual shall, intellectual labor shall be. Yet how is the heart to be developed if not by adversity? If I follow my former train of thought through all this implications, then perseverance and honor and courage, they might someday become just as frivolous as good eyesight or athleticism. They are not, not in a million years or a thousand days because they are truly the higher things that we need. We have freed ourselves to search. I just realized, however, that still how to find those high, higher values, values. After all, it's just we have eliminated our, our map. How stupid Papa also spoke of how wealth was viewed as disgraceful since the man couldn't provide for his family. How, what a lovely mindset. How loudly it showed of honor and pride, except that I thought we're lost with. It also reeks of chauvinism, ugh, ugh, but what of that? The homeless man's love for his family shines through the stupid, narrow-mindedness of his culture. What I found interesting about account of the war is that he didn't not talk much his second and third, but well, but well, more on his training in his first battle. I guess and this was because his training was bloodless and thus better to remember and his first battle are horrific enough to emblazon itself on his memory. It was the first time that he had killed, the first time he had seen people killed, and it isn't easier to experience these things. Always his, in his voice throughout the interview was unspoken thought that I wouldn't understand, that I had no real sense of what war, war was like. He was right, of course. It must have been overwhelming, but I only could only respond to it with an O or a sympathetic wince. It's been a while since we went to war. My generation never, obviously never had it. You're young, you think nothing can kill you. He said at one point with a slightly bitter note of his way, was he thinking about a d dead friend just then? That first battle after Saipan, he must have hardened himself to it all, tried to shut out, maybe that worked, maybe the latter battles were too uh, are, are horrible to recount, I don't know. His stories of distrusting the government seem somewhat strange, yet entirely believable. I wouldn't trust pe people who sent me and my friends to death without telling us either. How awful that had to have been to go into a battle and suddenly realize that it wouldn't be over half as quickly as your superiors led you to believe. Suddenly learn as you brush up against that those who are supposed to be on your side. Oh, oh, those who were supposed to be on your side lied. 
the, the way that Papa testified several times of dropping the Hiroshima bond hints to me that he feels guilt that, guilt that it was done. Do he and other soldiers, Japanese and American, feel that there was some trade-off of life, trade-off determined by the United States? I'm thinking of people of the people of Hiroshima died so that more could live, but they didn't have any choice in the matter. It's not some sort of noble self-sacrificing death. In fact, it was not noble at all. It was simply a rough cessation of human life. The only reason that has been glorified over the past 50 years because of heart-wrenching guilt that the Americans felt and still feel. This guilt, this guilt turned the dead, the dead into something noble, not because the deed was noble himself, but because we wanted to make amends and ease our own guilt. Uh, I think that writing in there is the teacher's comments. Oh, okay, it could be. Papa's attitude towards the war seems to make sense. If you go to war, go to win. It makes sense holding back your effort, full effort, only prolongs the war. After all, the enemy can always come back at you when you think you put them in retreat. It needs to be a quick, full defeat to surrender with surrender and all its trappings to go along with it. Papa continually compared other wars to World War II throughout the interview and regarded World War II as the high point in the century. Is this because he was involved in it or looks upon it as the most important part of his life? Or because he knows it to be pivotal of the war of the 20th, pivotal war of the 20th century and is merely proud to have participated in it? It's kind of circular question, I suppose. One thing cannot be mistaken. It is his absolute and utter conviction that it played a major part in the playing out of his half-century event. The support he gave me was strong, and I do believe that I have been one of a world tour. World War II truly did a lot in motion. There were parts where I wasn't sure that I agreed with him, for, ex for example, helpless funding or and feed the FDR being the greatest president, but it was an educational experience. I haven't often heard those opinions expressed before. I truly enjoyed listening to all of this. It's fascinating. First-rate history, direct from the mouths of the elders. This is how the past was learned thousands of years ago. And it's, uh, it, it, that in itself makes the experience stronger, maybe the sort of thing ought to be revived. It brings the past so close. It's also the teacher's comment at the end. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Same, same penmanship as the other one. So I yeah, think yeah, I, I think that's what it was, yeah. Definite, definite.
for the reference the teacher's comments that excellent job outstanding interview and an exceptional discussion following it yeah yeah